Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. If you're new with us, my name is Chase Iflin. I'm the Minister of Community and Connection here at Redemption. And if you're not new or if you've at least been here the past few weeks, you might be wondering uh, where Jeff is at when he's going to be back up here. Uh, The good news is you don't have to wait much longer. Jeff got a much-deserved three weeks off from preaching. Uh, It wasn't three weeks off, just three weeks off from preaching, and uh, he'll be back next week. Uh, Who remembers those storms we had last Saturday night? Uh, yeah, I've, I've only lived about half my life in Oklahoma, but I'm pretty sure those were the strongest storms that I've ever experienced. Um, I had gone to sleep, but it woke me up, and Maddie and I were standing in the living room just watching the trees whip back and forth, and it was really crazy. We have a, a redbud tree in the corner of our backyard that was just flying down, hitting the grass, whipping back up, and it, it just, it, it was crazy. It was bending in half, basically, and thankfully, we didn't have uh, much damage at our house, but I know that that wasn't true for everyone. Uh, my parents had a lot of tree damage at their house. Their neighbor's yard looked just like it did after the ice storm we had a couple of years ago. And as I was watching the, the trees get uh, violently tossed around last Saturday, I couldn't help but feel a little bit bad for them. And I know they don't have a heart or a mind or a soul, anything like that, but they're just there. They're just growing. They're looking nice. They're giving us oxygen. They're there for us. And then all of a sudden, a thunderstorm blows through and just whips them around with 100-mile-an-hour winds and breaks off a few branches or a few limbs or even worse. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about how hard it is to be a tree in Oklahoma. Uh, During spring... Spring, you deal with some of the, the strongest thunderstorms anywhere on the planet, and even when it's not storming, the wind is just blowing 20 or 30 miles an hour nonstop. During summer, you usually get a break from those storms, but then drought sets in and dries up all of the available water that the trees have. Fall comes, and fall is great, but it lasts for like two weeks, and then you get winter, and winter has ice storms that just break off all of the tree's limbs and leave them battered and bruised just in time for spring, and the wind to come back up and knock off all of those broken limbs that didn't fall down on their own. And it's, it's no wonder that Oklahoma isn't known, we're not known here for the amount or the height of our trees. It's a minor miracle if a tree lives more than 10 years or gets more than 20 feet tall. And so as I'm reflecting on uh, the perils of trees in Oklahoma last Saturday, I have also have uh, the book of Acts in my head, and I start to think, hmm, Paul's life and our lives as well really aren't much different than the lives of trees in Oklahoma. We have seasons of early spring where things are looking up and we're excited about new beginnings, maybe graduating from high school or college or starting a new job or getting married or moving to a new city. But then the wind comes and the newness rubs off, the hard parts of the new job or marriage or the new city start to be more pronounced. Then a storm comes, maybe it's a minor storm, maybe it's a major storm. And we get through the storm, we experience some some peace and ease of life again. 
uh, much like the beautiful spring weather that we had this year. But then summer comes and life gets hard again and hard things are happening and we feel dried up emotionally and physically and spiritually, just like the trees will feel at the end of August. Then we get through it, we experience fall, life is great, but it never lasts very long, an ice storm is right around the corner. And this is life for every single one of us. The intensity and frequency of these metaphorical storms and drought vary from person to person, but every single one of us has an experience like this as we go through life. At times, life feels smooth and circumstances are good, and at other times, our circumstances are stormy and life is hard. And maybe the hardest part about all of it is that just like the trees, most of storms in life are completely outside of our control. Of course, there's some storms that are due to our own foolishness, our, our own sin, but much of the time, we're, we're like the trees last Saturday. We're just enjoying the goodness of life, the beautiful spring weather, and then all of a sudden, we're whipped around by 100-mile-an-hour winds. And for us as Christians, we know that God is in control of all things. We know that God loves us, but it doesn't make it easy to weather the storms of life or to trust God in the midst of them. You can know all the right things about God. You can read scripture every day and pray regularly. You could be a pastor even, and none of those things means that trusting God with the difficult parts of life is easy. And it wasn't easy for Paul either. In Acts 21, which is our passage this morning, uh, we see Paul finish his journey towards Jerusalem where he knew that he would be arrested and likely even killed for his faith. And this chapter is filled with tears and with sorrow. We see Paul and his friends wrestling with God's will for Paul's life and struggling to trust God in the midst of the difficulty. But we also see Paul continue his journey faithfully and through this journey of Paul towards Jerusalem in this final chapter before he gets there, I think we can learn several things from him about what it looks like to trust God with the hard stuff of life. And Paul's example in Acts 21 is important for all of us because none of us escapes suffering in life. Facing hard things is universal to the human experience. And for followers of Jesus, struggling to trust God with the hard things is universal to Christian experience. And so we want to lean in this morning and see how it is that Paul was able to withstand the storms of life and to trust God even in the most difficult of circumstances. We've got a lot of verses to cover this morning, so I'll start by summarizing just the first six verses of chapter 21, and then uh, we'll pick it up and start reading at verse 7 in just a minute. So chapter 20, if you were here last week, it ended with Paul saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in Miletus before he boards a ship and continues his journey towards Jerusalem. And so in Acts 21, verse 1, we pick up the story, and Luke is recording several quick stops that Paul is making along the way on his way to Jerusalem. It was really common for people to travel through the Mediterranean Sea in small boats and to travel during the day and then come into port at night and then travel during the day again. And it looks like that's what Paul's doing here. He's just kind of jumping from town to town along the coast. And then, uh, as, we, as we get closer to verse 7, they get on a larger boat and travel a multi-day journey through the heart of the Mediterranean Sea and land at a city called Tyre, where they spend seven days with the Christians in that city. And Luke says that when it came time to leave Tyre, it was a similar scene to uh, back in Miletus. All of the believers in the city came with Paul to the harbor, and Luke says that they knelt down on the beach, they prayed together, they said farewell to one another for the final time. And then the Christians in Tyre went home, and Paul got on the boat and headed to Jerusalem. And we'll pick it up, and I'll start reading in uh, verse 7. 
to Acts 21, verse 7. It says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, that is Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And so Paul continues his journey towards Jerusalem, and here he stops at Ptolemaeus and Caesarea. And in Caesarea, he stays with Philip, who was one of the seven who was chosen back in Acts 6 to help with the uh, food distribution that the church in Jerusalem was putting on. It's the same Philip who told the Ethiopian eunuch about the gospel in Acts chapter 8. And we know that Philip was forced out of Jerusalem into Samaria because of persecution. And now we find out what he was doing in Samaria. He's called the evangelist, which likely is a title that separates him from Philip the apostle, but also tells us something about what Philip was up to in Samaria. He was telling people about Jesus. We also learn that Philip has four daughters who prophesy. And while Paul is staying with Philip and his family, a prophet named Agabus, who we heard about back in Acts 11, comes down from Judea and has a prophecy for Paul. Now, prophecy in the Bible is is complex and varied, and we don't have time to get into the specifics of prophecy this morning, but the most basic definition of prophecy is a message from God. And we've already seen both prophecies and prophets in the book of Acts, and we know that it was a part of the story of the early church in this book. And so here, Luke records Agabus coming and giving a specific prophecy for Paul, which is that in Jerusalem, Paul will be arrested and handed over to the Roman judicial system. And the response from Paul's friends is that they beg him not to go. Notice the the we that shows up in this passage, especially in in verse 12. That's because Luke, who's the author of Acts, is with Paul and his friends at this moment. And Luke includes himself in that group that is urging Paul not to continue his journey to Jerusalem. But Paul's response is, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. You can begin to feel the emotion building here. Paul had left the Ephesian elders back in Miletus in chapter 20, and it says that they were weeping and embracing when he left because he knew he would never see his friends again. Paul left Tyre in chapter 21, kneeling down in the sand with the whole church, men, women, and children, and praying before saying farewell for the final time. And now Paul receives this message from God, which is not the first one, about what awaits him when he arrives in Jerusalem. And as he's preparing to leave Caesarea, those who are gathered in Philip's house are crying and they're pleading with him not to go. And Paul says that all of this is breaking his heart. Yet Paul's response is firm and powerful. He says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Luke says, since he would not be persuaded, we said, let the will of the Lord be done. 
It's a really emotional scene here. Luke or Paul is headed for arrest. He's likely headed for death. And every step of the way on this journey, he and his friends are weeping with sorrow. And here in Caesarea, um, specifically, they plead with him not to go. But Paul is ready to go, even if it means that he's going to die. And for Paul, he knew that his life as a Christian would be filled with suffering. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus in um, Acts 9 and saved him, Jesus said to Paul, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul wasn't surprised by this. He wasn't surprised that he was facing arrest. God's will for Paul's life involved a special amount of suffering that was part of his incredible ministry. But for us, dying for our faith or even being arrested for our faith is really far from our minds. It's just not something that we can even comprehend because it's not something that is part of our Christian life. But it doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from this story or from Paul about how Paul faces this difficulty in his life. Because even though we've never experienced this circumstance, the threat of death and arrest for our faith, every single one of us has experienced the emotions that Paul's feeling here. We've all had things in life that we wanted God to take away and that we prayed to God to take away, and he didn't take them away. We've all had things in life that we wanted and we prayed to God for, and he didn't give them to us. We've all been brought to tears over difficult circumstances in our life because life in a broken world is hard. We've all wrestled with God's goodness or even God's existence in response to the suffering we faced. And as followers of Jesus, we want to cling to God when circumstances are tough. We know the gospel gives us the hope to carry on, but that doesn't make it easy. And it wasn't easy for Paul either. Paul's response to the difficulty was ultimately to trust the Lord with it, but it wasn't easy. He's headed to Jerusalem and he's weeping. He's broken hearted, but he does trust the Lord with it. And I think there's at least three things from Paul's example here um, and his response to difficulty that we can learn and that I want to lean into for a minute. So three ways we can follow the example of Paul to help us trust the Lord with the suffering we face in life that will inevitably come our way. The first, number one, is that to trust the Lord with the hard stuff of life, we need to recognize that faith in Christ doesn't take away the hard stuff. And we have to start here. There, there are so many reasons for this, but unfortunately, a, a theology that says becoming a Christian means my life will get better circumstantially and that really bad things will never happen to me has crept its way in to the American church. And oftentimes, the picture of the Christian life that gets painted for us in our culture is one that says, if you trust Jesus, life will go well for you. If you don't trust Jesus, life will be hard for you. In other words, the Christian life is supposed to be like a highly profitable stock chart that only ever goes up and to the right. And we see this all over the church. We see it in uh, popular Christian music, which tends to be all about triumph and victory in Christ, but rarely about trusting Jesus in the midst of suffering or doubt. We see it in the way that most of us naturally put on a happy face on Sunday mornings when someone asks us how we're doing. We say, oh, I'm doing good, even though it's probably not really true. We just know that's, that's what we're supposed to say. We see this, uh, this played out as an example in uh, popular Christian cliches, like when God closes a door, he opens a window, which suggests that any disappointment in life only appears to be a disappointment, but God is really doing something that you're actually going to like a lot better once you can see what he's doing, which completely minimizes the real pain and real sorrow caused by disappointments in life. I don't think many of us are, are tempted to believe the explicit prosperity gospel, 
which says that if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want, or if you give enough money to the church, God will bless you with a new car. But even if we don't believe that, we've all been influenced by the implicit prosperity gospel. And the implicit prosperity gospel is that unspoken, even unconscious belief that because I'm a Christian, life should go well for me. And the implicit prosperity gospel is a lot more subtle than the explicit prosperity gospel, but it's equally as dangerous. Because what happens when suffering hits you if you believe that as a Christian you shouldn't experience suffering? You start to question your faith. You doubt God's goodness or his existence. Because if being a Christian means that life should go well for you, that it should always go up and to the right, then when that doesn't happen, it means something must be wrong, either with you or with what you believe. But what's wrong is not that you lack faith or that God isn't real or good. It's that the Bible doesn't teach that following Jesus means that the hard stuff in life just goes away. In fact, in John 16, 33, Jesus himself said, In this world, you will have tribulation. Other translations say trouble or distress, difficulty, suffering. Jesus told his followers and us that that we would experience suffering in this world. In Jesus' famous parable about those who build their house on a firm foundation of rock versus a shaky foundation of sand, the whole point of the parable was that if you build your life on Jesus, you will be equipped to weather the storms that come, not that you will escape all of the storms altogether. And then Paul, of course, is a great example of this. He's likely the most famous Christian in history. He's the greatest missionary ever. And he was told by Jesus that his ministry would include suffering. In 2 Corinthians, Paul lists out all the suffering he's faced, all the beatings he's received, the number of times he was imprisoned, the cold and heat exposure, the robbery, the shipwrecks, and so much more. And so if bad things aren't supposed to happen to good Christians, then something must have been wrong with Paul. And Paul obviously wasn't perfect, we know that, but he is an example of someone faithfully following Jesus, giving his life away completely for him, and yet Paul experienced more suffering in life than most of us ever will. And so any theology that explicitly states or implicitly implies that following Jesus means life will always be circumstantially pleasant just isn't biblical. Sometimes we identify more with the songs about doubt or about struggling to trust God than we do with the songs about victory and triumph in Christ. Sometimes we're not doing good and that's okay. Sometimes doors get closed and no window gets open. This is all part of life in a broken world. And so if we are going to trust God with the hard stuff of life, we first need to recognize that following God doesn't mean bad stuff won't happen to us. We need to expect hardship in life and not be surprised when it comes our way because such is life in a broken world. The second thing we can learn from Paul's example is that to trust God with the hard stuff of life, we need to walk honestly in community. I've been so struck the last few weeks as we followed Paul on this journey to Jerusalem uh, by his relationships with the other Christians in this story. As Paul's traveling towards Jerusalem, he's stopping at all of these towns on the way and that his interaction with the believers in each of these towns is really just incredible. And some of these people he knew well, some of them he might not have known at all, some of these towns he had hardly spent any time in or hadn't been there in years And yet, what we're seeing is that Paul is just bearing his souls to these people, and they're bearing their souls back to him. We got a longer longer example of this last week and what he said with the Ephesian elders. We saw how Paul was open with them about what was going on in his life, also about the emotions he was feeling because of what was going on in his life, and he greatly encouraged them with his confidence in Jesus. 
And as our small group was discussing last week's sermon at group on Tuesday, the depth of relationship that Paul had with his friends was one of the things that just struck us and really challenged us. And we see that continue this week in chapter 21. We don't get as long of conversation as in chapter 20, but we still see the whole church entire goes with Paul to the beach. They kneel down and pray before they say goodbye. We see weeping over the prophecy made about what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. We see wrestling with his friends over what's the right thing for Paul to do in this situation. And again, Paul, we see him being not honest just about the situation and the circumstances, but with his emotions, with what's going on inside, telling his friends that it breaks his heart to hear them pleading with him not to go. And notice what Paul doesn't do when he's faced with this difficult situation. He doesn't put his head down, keep to himself, head straight to Jerusalem, avoiding everyone else along the way, pull himself up by his bootstraps, grin and bear it, distract himself, suck it up, and head to Jerusalem to be arrested and likely killed. That's how we tend to handle hard things in life. That's how I tend to handle hard things. We bottle it up or we distract ourselves with entertainment and we just move on with life. Instead, Paul was honest with his community. And he wasn't honest just about the facts that was, he was headed to Jerusalem to be arrested. He was honest about what was going on beneath the surface, that he was confident in Christ, but he was also sorrowful and sad to leave his friends. And so if we are going to trust Jesus with the hard stuff of life, we need to do this too. If we don't, if we just shove everything down, distract ourselves with Netflix and social media so we don't even have to think about it, and then just move on with life, it will not end well. Our hurt and our pain will just come back up later as anger. Our anxiety and our sadness will grow. We might even start slowly turning away from God because we just can't reconcile a good God with the difficulty of our circumstances. Trusting God with the hard stuff of life requires walking honestly in community. And so let me give you two practical ways to live this out real quick. Number one, you need a Christian community. It's really hard to be honest with community, in your community without community. And by Christian community, I don't just mean this large group of a church gathering. This gathering is really important. It's great to come and to worship God through song and to hear the word preached and to take communion with one another. But what we do here on Sundays is not a good place for deep, honest conversations about life. For that, you need a smaller group of Christian community. This is one of the reasons that we have small groups at Redemption, and you hear us basically every single week inviting you to get into a small group if you're not in one already. It's because we need these deep relationships like Paul has. So if you're not in a small group, I'd love to help connect you with one. You can see a list of our groups and sign up for one on our website, on the Church Center app, or at this table right outside these doors. Before and after service, I'm usually up there. I'd love to help get you plugged into a group. Number two our small group conversations have to get beneath the surface. And this is hard. I think we all know how easy it is for small group conversations about life to focus on the external things. We say things like, life is crazy right now. I don't like my job. Parenting is exhausting. So-and-so's in the hospital. Or we're discussing uh, the sermon from Sunday or, the, or the, biblical, the Bible passage, and we say things like, that really stood out to me. Or I like how Paul said this. I like how Chris said that. And none of those examples are wrong things to say at, at small group, of course, but the problem is uh, those are the external things, those are the surface level things, and we usually stay there. It's a lot harder to get beneath the surface into what's actually going on in our hearts. But walking honestly in community requires getting there. 
It requires saying something like, life is crazy right now, but I'm excited about all of the things going on and I feel like I'm learning to trust Jesus more and more each day. Or, life is crazy right now and it's causing me to feel disconnected from Jesus. My marriage is suffering. I'm filled with anxiety. Walking honestly in community looks like saying something like, I like how Paul said this in verse 10. I don't see myself living that out. Can you guys help hold me accountable? I promise I'm preaching to myself more than anyone else right now. This is really hard. It's not natural for most of us to do. But this is what it takes to honestly process the hard stuff of life and to trust Jesus in the midst of it. And so let's strive to follow Paul's model here and as best as we can walk honestly in community. First by getting in community and then by getting beneath the surface with our community. Third thing we learn from Paul about trusting Jesus with the hard stuff of life is that we need to commit to following Jesus no matter what. From his conversion, when Jesus told him that he would suffer all the way up to this last trip to Jerusalem where he is facing death, Paul never wavered in following Jesus. And he had an easy out. He had several options. If he didn't want to be beaten and arrested, he could have just fled from Jerusalem. He could have uh, gone to some Gentile town and quietly preached the gospel and not made anyone angry. Or he could have gone to Jerusalem, renounced Jesus, returned to his former life as a pious Jew. And either option would have meant no more beatings, no more imprisonment, and likely many more years of a comfortable life. But Paul was committed to following Jesus no matter what that meant for his life. In 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul famously said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Meaning Paul's life was committed to Jesus no matter what that meant, even if it meant the worst thing, which was death. In Romans 14, Paul fleshes that famous verse out a little bit more, and he says it another way. He says, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So in this verse, Paul explains a little bit more how it is that he's able to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's because he belongs to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, another letter from Paul, he writes to the church there, and he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so the reason Paul is able to fully commit to following Jesus, no matter what that means for his life, and not do the thing that would be easiest or safest for him is because he knows that he doesn't belong to himself anymore. Paul knows that his only hope in life and death is Jesus, and that if Jesus is Lord and Jesus has saved him by grace, then the only natural response is to give his life over to Jesus and to trust God with whatever that means. And therefore, even though I'm sure Paul in his flesh, just like anybody, he wants to live. He doesn't want to be beaten and imprisoned. He wants to live a comfortable life, yet he's committed to following Jesus no matter what. And so he gives up his desires for God's desires. And laying down our desires in order to follow Jesus is not easy. It's hard. Here's what John Calvin says about the implications of belonging to Christ. He says, if we then are not our own, but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee. We are not our own. Let not our, let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us, therefore, live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. 
We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Commenting on what Calvin said there, Tim Keller writes, the basic principle then is this, that we are not to live to please ourselves. We're not to live as if we belong to ourselves. And that means several things. It means, first of all, we are not to determine for ourselves what is right or wrong. We give up the right to determine that, and we rely wholly on God's word. We also give up the operating principle that we usually use in day-to-day life. We stop putting ourselves first, and we always put first what pleases God and what loves our neighbor. It also means that we are to have no part of our lives that is immune from self-giving. We're supposed to give ourselves wholly to him, body and soul. And it means we trust God through thick and thin, through the good and the bad times, in life and in death. And again, for us, following Jesus likely won't mean beatings, arrest, and death, like Paul. But we still need to recognize that we are not our own and make the same commitment that Paul made to follow Jesus no matter what. We may not face death for our faith like Paul, but every day we're called to be like the church in Caesarea in verse 14 and say, your will be done, Lord. Your will be done, Lord, with my health, with my job, with my relationships, with my sexuality, with my finances, with my future. Jesus said that following him means denying ourselves, taking up our cross, which is a symbol of suffering and death, and then following him. In some ways, life would actually be easier if we didn't belong to Jesus. We could spend our money however we wanted. We could pursue whatever relationships we wanted. We wouldn't feel the need to take one night out of our week to go to small group or give up one of our weekend mornings to come here and do this together. But of course, that life would also be meaningless and hopeless. Jesus has saved us and given us new life that is the best life there is, but it's not the circumstantially easiest life there is. And so if Jesus is Lord of all, and he saved us, then we belong to him. And that is great news because it means that our hope is not built on ourselves. It's built on the one who created and sustains all things. But it also means if we belong to Jesus, we give up the right to do whatever pleases us because we belong to him. Alan Noble, who's a professor down the road at Oklahoma Baptist University, writes this. He says, belonging to God sets limits on our lives, and sometimes they are hard limits to bear. It is not easy to stand before God, even with grace. Moment by moment, we must set aside our sinful desires, even the ones closest to our heart, to live sacrificially. I do not want to lie to you. This is a difficult life. The temptation for us is that when God's path for our life is hard, we go our own way. This comes back around to the theology of the Christian life being always up and to the right all the time. We've been told by our larger culture and even sometimes by Christian culture that if something doesn't feel right, then it must not be right. And so it's hard for us to imagine that God might call us to move to a new city if we love the current city we live in, or to singleness if we have a desire for marriage, or to sell this thing or that thing and give the money away, or to give up certain activities to have more time with family or with our small group community. The truth is that for every single one of us, God's path for our lives will involve some level of self-denial and saying no to something we desire in order to lay hold of the better path of God's life for us. Jesus invites us to the deepest and most meaningful life there is, but not the circumstantially easiest life or the one in which all of our dreams and desires are fulfilled, at least not in the way that we want them to be. Even in the face of death, Paul chose Jesus. 
And his example challenges us to do the same. His example challenges us not to avoid hard things in life, not to choose the easy life, and not to choose Jesus because we think he'll give us that easy life. But to choose Jesus when it's easy and to choose Jesus when it's hard to commit to following him no matter what. Well, let's finish this story. And again, I'll uh, do some summary here. Um, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem in uh, verse 17, he's greeted by the church leaders there and specifically James and they swap stories about how the gospel has gone forth in both with, with Jews and among Gentiles. But then James tells Paul that even though there's over a thousand believing Jews in Jerusalem, they're not very happy with Paul. Uh, these, these Christian Jews have heard that Paul is teaching that Jewish Christians don't need to follow the Old Testament law, and so they are not happy about it. And their accusations seem to be a little bit misinformed, a little bit exaggerated, but at the same time, there is some truth to them. Uh, Paul wasn't going around, as far as we know, telling the Jews not to circumcise their male children or to not to practice Sabbath or anything like that, but he was teaching that in Jesus, Jews had freedom from the law, and that their standing before God was built on Jesus, not on the law. And this made some of these Jewish Christians angry. And so to ease the tensions that uh, Paul has with these Jews, James encourages Paul to help pay for the expenses of four men who have taken a vow there in Jerusalem, which basically would be a way for Paul to show respect for the Old Testament law. And so Paul agrees to do so. Um, while he's there, he actually participates in a seven-day ritual purification for himself, which would have been expected for a Jew who was outside of Jerusalem and had come back to the city to worship. And again, Paul's doing these things out of respect and trying to repair relationships. It's not, there's no indication here that Paul's doing this because he thinks he needs to as a Jewish Christian. He's just doing it to repair these relationships and to have respect for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And I'll pick it up in verse 27 and read uh, through verse 36. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, yeah, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. And so while Paul's trying to appease the Jews living in Jerusalem, there's another group of Jews who comes from Asia and they're likely there to celebrate Pentecost, and they make more accusations about Paul, and it results in what Paul had expected. He's beaten, and he's arrested. And Paul's willingness to be obedient to Jesus and go to Jerusalem, even though he knew what awaited him there, is a really remarkable example. But the way that Luke tells this story actually is intentionally pointing beyond just the example of Paul. 
If you notice the cry of the mob in verse 36, they're saying, away with him, away with him, which should sound familiar to you if you know the stories of Jesus in the gospel. Because in Luke 23, after Jesus was arrested, the crowd is crying out to Jesus. They're saying, away with this man, away with this man. And now the crowd is crying away with Paul. And we can learn a lot about the way, we can learn a lot from Paul about the way he trusted God with the hard things of life. But ultimately, Paul's example is meant to point beyond himself to Jesus. The only way it makes any sense that Paul is willing to die for his faith is because Jesus died for him. Jesus, the Son of God, became a human being, lived a perfect life, went to Jerusalem to die the death that every other human being deserves. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He was resurrected to new life. He ascended back to heaven and he promised to come again to raise all things to new life. And it's because Paul believed that this was true that he was able to trust God with the hard things in life. Faith in Jesus' resurrection and in our future resurrection is what frees us to walk through even the most difficult circumstances in this life. Life is filled with storms. It just is. But the one who has the power and authority to calm the storms died for you and for me. And he didn't stay dead. He rose up victoriously over death and he's coming back to wipe away every tear. And so because of Jesus, we can face whatever life brings, just like Paul did, knowing that we are not our own. Which is great news because we belong to the one who has the power to make all things new. And when we see him face to face, there will be no more hard stuff. There'll be no more need for sermons like this. There'll just be joy. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning currently going through one of these hard seasons. Lord, I pray that you would give them a strong sense of your presence in the midst of the storm. I pray that you would surround them with friends like Paul had to share their emotions with and to help bear their burdens. Father, I pray for all of us. I pray that you would increase our faith and our hope in Jesus' resurrection and in our future resurrection. Pray that you would give us the strength to face whatever comes our way in life. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting Jesus for new life in this world and for eternal life in the world to come, I pray that you would open their hearts to receive them this morning. That you would raise them to new life as you raise Jesus to new life. And it's in his name we pray. Thank you.